Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is our summer season, and we're going to be spending this season talking about a lot of topics that are extremely relevant to current life in Florida. There's a lot going on right now in our state, for better or for worse, and it's very important, in my opinion, to not only talk about the things that are going on, but also to talk about how our history is impacting the current events of our state, which is pretty much what the show was founded on five years ago, back in those early days. That was what the show was about. I was going to be talking about politics and using history to inform that a little more. Well, it kind of got switched the other way, mostly history, which is for the better. I love writing about history, which is actually what we're going to be talking a lot about today. We're going to be talking about history. Let's get into it. This week, we're talking about Florida and the myth of the lost cause. This is a broad topic, one we are likely going to return to many times on this show, but it feels like it's well past time for us to talk about it, talk about its relevance to our lives. It has become an all-too-relevant topic to acknowledge in this state. The Lost Cause is a huge, transformative movement started by the Confederates and their ancestors that affects so much of daily American life to this day, and it's time, I think, to explore it and how it has appeared in the state of Florida. But let's go back a few decades or so, a hundred years or more, and meet one of Florida's governors. His name is Francis P. Fleming. Born in Duval County, Florida in 1841, growing up on a plantation along the St. John's River, Francis P. Fleming would go on to be a lawyer and eventually the 15th governor of Florida. The plantation where he grew up was called Hibernia, and it was built in 1790 on an island near what is now Jacksonville. That island that Hibernia was built on was literally called Fleming Island. It was named for his family. As was standard across the state of Florida in that period, Hibernia was a plantation that used slave labor. One document I found stated that at one time the plantation had 30 enslaved persons on its property. Fleming Island was settled by Irish immigrant George Fleming after he received a land grant from the Spanish government that ruled Florida at the time. Fleming Island became home to the Fleming family for generations. Hibernia, the name of the plantation, was the Latin name for Ireland, so the Fleming family named the plantation after their home country. After George Fleming died, his son Louis took over ownership of the plantation. Then the American Civil War hit, and the Flemings, like so many families, joined with the Confederate cause to keep slavery legal. The patriarch, Lewis, did not fight in the war, but died of heart failure at home in 1862. But Lewis had sons who were old enough to fight for the Confederate Army, and the Fleming family soon felt the burden of the war. One of Lewis's sons, Charles, died in Virginia in the Battle of Cold Harbor on June 3, 1864. The women not involved in the war, Lewis's wife and daughters, were back at the plantation, but they were apparently accused of being spies for the Confederacy and, quote, were expelled from Hibernia Plantation by Union troops, end quote. When the war was over and the surviving Flemings came home to the plantation, they discovered it standing but looted. They would eventually turn it into a hotel. Today, it's a suburb. But Louis Fleming's second son, Francis, was destined for more beyond the Hibernia Plantation. The eldest Fleming boy, Charles, was the one who died in the Civil War, and the loss of that brother affected Francis Fleming for the rest of his life. Francis himself served in the war, working up to the ranks of captain before he was wounded in battle and became a recruiter for volunteer soldiers afterwards. When the Confederacy lost and Fleming was creating a life after the war, he became a lawyer, had children, and settled into life in post-war Florida. 
but the loss of his brother clearly lingered on Fleming's mind. In 1884, 20 years after the death of Charles Seton Fleming, Francis published a book about his brother titled The Florida Troops in Virginia, a memoir of Captain C. Seton Fleming. It was meant to illustrate the life of his brother and the troops he served with, a way for Fleming to tell the story of his late brother. Right inside the front cover was a highly detailed drawing of Charles, a handsome, intense portrait of a soldier. In the introduction, Charles writes this, quote, If by this little work, as a messenger of the past, I shall contribute my might toward a proper appreciation by the generations that follow of the heroic patriotism which stimulated their fathers to the performance of deeds of valor on the battlefield, and the patient endurance of every species of hardship, privation, and suffering in defense of their country during four years of desolating war, my object will have been accomplished." End quote. It's wordy, no doubt about that, but I want to focus on one line in there. Francis Fleming refers to the work done by his brother, a Confederate, and other Confederate soldiers as, quote-unquote, heroic patriotism. This is important to remember. It was nearly 20 years after the Civil War now, and Fleming, like so many who supported the Confederate cause as a soldier or a civilian, was trying to frame the Confederate States of America in a specific light. That is because in the years after the Civil War, Confederate leaders and supporters sought about to rewrite the narrative of the Confederate States of America. Not the war itself or its outcome, but the causes for the war, specifically attempting to frame the southern states as underdogs who were fighting for a just cause and to paint the northerners as the aggressors. If you've ever heard the Civil War referred to as the War of Northern Aggression, that's the sort of framing that we are talking about here. The Southerners looked like the upstart rebels, which is the word they used, rebels, and the Northerners looked like the bad guys. That's the way that the narrative started to be framed. This realignment of the narrative has a name. Historians refer to it as the myth of the lost cause. The lost cause, as a term, is meant to portray the reasons for the Confederate secession in a positive light, a sort of dramatic retelling painted as if the cause in question was Southern freedom. In reality, there is no denying it. The Confederate States of America seceded from the United States, making themselves traitors to the country they were allegedly protecting so that they could maintain slavery and slave labor within their states. Before we go any further, I think we should introduce our guest so he can provide some much-needed context for this topic. My guest this week, who you're going to be hearing from throughout the show, is Seth Weitz. Seth Weitz is a history professor. I'll let him reintroduce himself, but he was on this show a couple of years ago to talk about the Florida Pork Chop Gang. I'll include a link in the episode description so you can go back and listen to those episodes because the Pork Chop Gang actually has a very interesting relationship with this concept of the Lost Cause, but I suppose we should talk about that another time. But I'll let Seth reintroduce himself. My name is Seth Weitz. I am a professor of history at Dalton State College in Dalton, Georgia. I am a Florida native, um, and my areas of expertise are Florida history, um, mostly um, since the Civil War and sort of the New South and African American history. The Lost Cause, I, I would say was, because it was started as a movement almost immediately after the Civil War, uh, to reframe the history of the Civil War in a pro-Southern light. Um, Southerners, whether they were academics or Jefferson Davis wrote one of the most 
um, all-encompassing volumes on the lost cause uh, or of lost cause historiography about about the Civil War. Um, Southerners, after the defeat, wanted to teach the history their way, not teach it uh, from a, a Northern perspective or a Union perspective. And the Lost Cause began as more of a literary movement. And over the years and over the decades, it just transformed into all-encompassing narratives, remembrance, um, almost anything you could think of uh, to frame the South in a positive light from the Civil War era. Additionally, the Lost Cause myth hopes to present the idea that the Confederates lost not because they were outwitted or the Union fought a better fight. The Lost Cause proposes that the Union fought dirty and sloppy, and that the Confederates fought a noble fight with honor. This, too, is not the truth. The Confederates lost because the Union leaders outwitted them, and the repercussions in the South were severe. My main source for this episode, by the way, is called The Myth of the Lost Cause and Civil War History. It's edited by Gary W. Gallagher and Alan T. Nolan. It's a collection of essays about this very topic. It's a worthwhile read if you're curious about this topic. But the main essay I'm using is titled The Anatomy of the Myth by Alan T. Nolan. He presents the truth of the Civil War as we have been saying it for the last few minutes. The defined truths. The Confederacy supported slavery. They went to war so that they could maintain slavery. And they lost to the Union. Then he goes into why the Confederates felt the need to rewrite their history. He explains, using quotes from the time, that the Confederate army was not only resoundingly defeated, but the states in the South where the war itself was fought were also physically damaged to an extreme degree. One quote that is used in the essay that is attributed to James M. McPherson says, quote, The South was not only invaded and conquered, it was utterly destroyed. By 1865, the Union forces had destroyed two-thirds of the assessed value of Southern wealth, two-fifths of the South's livestock, and one-quarter of her white men between the ages of 20 and 40. More than half the farm machinery was ruined, and the damages to railroads and industries were incalculable. Southern wealth was decreased by 60%. End quote. It was a seismic shift in Southern life, and the Confederates did it to themselves. By refusing to comply with abolition, by planting their heels to defend slavery and the slave trade, by becoming traitors to their own nation, they damned their states and their people to the cost of the war. 60% of the South's wealth gone. And part of that was, naturally, because slavery was over. The impact was immediate and resounding. Alan T. Nolan says, quote, Leaders of such a catastrophe must account for themselves. Justification is necessary. End quote. He includes a quote from a man who is part of the United Confederate Veterans. His name is Clement A. Evans. He said, quote, If we cannot justify the South in the act of secession, we will go down in history solely as a brave, impulsive, but rash people who attempted in an illegal manner to overthrow the union of our country. End quote. A damning quote, to be certain. I don't want to say it's unique in that no other, you know, we can get into whether we call the Confederacy a, a country or not, but no other defeated entity um, treated the, the Civil War and treated their defeat much in the way that the South did and, and has. You know, the, the best example or, or a good example that people always point to is what Germany did after World War II. 
uh, and the way Germany over the last 80 years, 75 years, has handled their defeat in World War II. And, and you could argue that the South is the polar opposite of that, or, or many in the South have taken a complete opposite approach to that. Um, you know, part of it was because it was a civil war. Part of it was because it completely changed the fabric of Southern society, or at least Southerners felt it would completely change the fab fabric of society with the abolition of slavery and any rights that African-Americans were gonna gain after the Civil War. Um, they wanted to not be seen as the enemy or the bad guys, I guess you could say. And it's a concerted effort that's been made uh, over the past, you know, 160, 170 years to write their own narrative. The word that I want to focus in on amongst all the others is, is one that we're going to be coming back to again and again. It's the word justify, meaning you have to explain yourself in a way that makes it appear as though your actions were valid. That is what the Confederates were seeking to do, to justify their secession, to justify the war. The term itself, the Lost Cause, dates back as far as 1867 when an editor from the Richmond Examiner named Edward A. Pollard published a piece called The Lost Cause, the Standard Southern History of the War of the Confederates. The Southern History, I'll note, that that language is important. Alan T. Nolan says, quote, It is a full-blown argumentative statement of the Confederate point of view with respect to all aspects of the Civil War, end quote. So we're using words lost cause. And we're also referring to history as a Southern history. They're saying the lost cause, the standard Southern history of the war of the Confederates. By adding the word Southern in front of there, it adds that, that there's a filter on the history. And if you put the lost cause Southern history together, it's, it's essentially saying this is a story that is being told from the perspective that these people want to tell you it. Pollard essentially created the layout, the groundwork of what the Lost Cause myth would become, presenting slavery as a mild practice and the Confederates as noble countrymen, two deceits that carry a powerful weight and still find echoes to this day. It starts with actual history, history books, history texts, what's taught in schools. Um, that, you know, that's kind of the, the ground level of it. Um, and that is what was taught, you know, in, in Southern schools, in many cases, up until not that uh, long ago. Um, the South was right, or if they weren't right, they weren't wrong. Um, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Um, you know, that, that all of those ideas. But... It's more than just what was written in books or what was talked about in, in classrooms. It goes down to schools themselves being named after Nathan Bedford Forrest or Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis. Um, roads, counties. I mean, there are countless cities and counties in Florida that still and obviously throughout the South, but in Florida specifically, that still bear the name of Confederate politicians or Confederate generals. Uh, there has been a move recently to change school names, and most of school names in Florida have been or are being changed from Confederate names or, or any links to that. But, 
you know, monuments that were erected later on in the late 19th and early 20th century to state flags, county flags. Um, it was hard to go almost anywhere in Florida and not run into some aspect of the Confederacy, Confederate history, Confederate monument, something in a city, town, school, whatever. And it's, you know, almost like hitting you over the head with the Confederacy, and it just never left. Alan T. Nolan says, quote, The victim of the Lost Cause legend has been history, for which the legend has been substituted in the national memory, end quote. The idea of nobility in the Confederates was a seed planted soon after the war, and it still grows to this day. Alan T. Nolan says that history has been severely damaged by the myth of the lost cause. I think a very clear way to illustrate how the Confederates were able to plant that seed in the first place, that seed of rewriting the Civil War narrative, is to discuss Florida's governor, Francis P. Fleming. Because in my opinion, Fleming is the perfect candidate to understand the reasoning behind the perpetuation of the lost cause from his perspective, and to show how they were able to manipulate history to suit that perspective. Fleming's book about his brother is the first indicator. Clearly, the loss of his brother was a devastating one, and 20 years after that death, Francis sought to not only memorialize his brother as a hero in the memoir, but also to speak on the cause, the army, and the war that his brother died in service of. I mean, he was a, he was a Confederate veteran himself. He wrote a book talking about his his service in the, in the Confederate Army and the, the Florida troops in the Confederate Army, and it was a perfect example of lost cause. Um, he talked about the chivalry of the South and, and the heroism. I mean, he talked, played up himself as a heroic soldier um, defending the South and Keep in mind that Charles and Francis Fleming were the third generation of a wealthy plantation family who possessed enslaved persons. This wasn't written by a man who fought in the war and had no relationship with the actual cause of the war being slavery. No, this was written by a Confederate soldier whose family was an active part of slavery's presence in Florida. And it was this man, Francis P. Fleming, who would become the governor of Florida. Fleming, a Democrat, ran against V.J. Shipman, a Republican. Fleming was not new to state politics. Quote, he became involved in politics beginning as a member of the State Democratic Executive Committee and participated in the campaign of Governor George F. Drew in 1876. End quote. George F. Drew might need to be someone we talk about in the future. I'm going to pin his name to my board of stuff we need to talk about because Governor Drew was a union supporter in Confederate Florida after the Civil War and was a member of the Unionist Party when he ran for governor, he also supported Ulysses S. Grant, who was, you know, the general of the Union Army. He supported Ulysses S. Grant when he ran for president. It is strange to me that George F. Drew ran for governor and he had the support of Francis P. Fleming, noted Confederate, supporter of the Confederate cause. That's a story for another day. What can you do? Politics are complicated, but we'll talk about George F. Drew later on. Either way, Fleming running for the governorship as a Democrat won the election of 1888 handily with 60% of the vote going his way. I will remind you, as I always do, that the terms Democrat and Republican do not mean 
today, what they meant back then. People often get those things confused. It was basically just the name on the tin. Democrats were much more interested in small government back then, the same policy that Republicans claim to support nowadays. That's just one example. There's many, many things that distinguish those parties from the parties of today. So when I say Fleming was a Democrat, that does not mean that he shares the belief of, you know, say the current president of the United States, Joe Biden, who is a Democrat. Those parties are just fundamentally different. It's been 130-something years between those two specific parties, so there's a lot of difference between then and now. Anyway, Fleming became governor in 1889. He was inaugurated, and over the course of his single term in office, which was the term limit at the time, he did manage to make an impact on the state. When he became governor, yellow fever was actively ravaging the state. Under his office, the State Board of Health was founded to help with the yellow fever epidemic. Interestingly, Fleming plays a very large role in another large story in Florida's history as he abolished the Florida Railroad Commission, which was a state-run commission that was created in 1887 to help regulate the expanding rail industry, quote, to curb monopoly abuses by railroad companies, end quote. You want to guess who wanted that commission overturned? Maybe someone who was involved with railroads, maybe someone who knew a thing or two about monopolies? Any guesses? Final answer? You guessed it, it's Henry Flagler, our old friend. Flagler supported repealing this commission because of course he did. <laughs> of course he wanted there to be less regulation so that he could keep building his rail lines. When the commission was overturned in 1891, there was less regulation on railroad companies. The following year, 1892, Flagler's train company began expanding south and changed the shape of Florida forever. So that is possibly Fleming's biggest impact on the state. Possibly. The National Governors Association says about Fleming that under his leadership, quote, state revenues were regulated, educational programs were restructured, and a commission was created to supervise state land grants for an Indian reservation, end quote. And by the beginning of 1893, he was out of office, back to being a lawyer. But his impact on the state did not end when he was no longer the governor. He had much more to do, out of office as well. Let's cut to 1898. So he was elected 10 years prior to this moment. And right now he is at a dedication for a statue. An article in the Florida Times Union from August 29th, 2017 by Matt Sorgel details an event later in Fleming's life. That day was June 16th, 1898, 125 years ago this past Friday. In Jacksonville, on that day, a statue was dedicated, quote, the new 62-foot monument to Florida's Confederate soldiers, end quote. A quick and relevant sidebar, when we talk about Florida's Confederate soldiers, I want to make you understand how many there were. The Museum of Florida History says, quote, Florida contributed more than 15,000 troops to the Confederate war effort. While this was a small number when compared with other southern states, it was the highest percentage of available men of military age from any Confederate state, end quote. So, as this statue honoring these soldiers was unveiled to the public, former Confederate soldier and former Florida governor Francis P. Fleming gave a speech, the opening speech of the ceremony. According to this article from 2017, here is a quote from Fleming himself. Quote, no intelligent and well-informed person of the present day whose mind is not imbued with fanatical teachings believes that the Confederates were traitors. No people ever espoused a cause or went forth to battle in defense of home and country with a clearer conscience of right in the discharge of duty. End quote. Again, quite a quote from Fleming there. Let's focus on that first bit. 
Fleming is saying, I'll rephrase using his words. Fleming is saying that only people who are not intelligent and not well-informed would believe that the Confederates were traitors. History disagrees with Fleming. They were, in fact, by definition, traitors. They seceded from their country and went to war with said country. By that definition, that is a traitor. Fleming is also saying that someone who thinks the Confederates were traitors have a mind that is, quote, imbued with fanatical teachings, end quote. If you disagree with Fleming on the matter, you are not intelligent, not well-informed, or your mind is full of, quote-unquote, fanatical teachings. That is some starkly similar language to rhetoric spoken nowadays. It is chilling, to say the least. Another quote from the newspaper that was published at the time refers to the Confederate effort directly as the lost cause, adding, quote, the cause which in the words of one speaker went down in defeat, but not in dishonor, end quote. Again, they are saying that the Confederate cause was fought with honor. The final striking quote from Fleming reads, quote, no traitor's heart found place in the breast of the Confederate soldier, end quote. This idea of heroism patriotism, honor, certainty, and a devout love for his southern countrymen was the narrative pushed by the former Confederates in the years, and I mean years, after the Civil War. This event that we're talking about was 1898. That is 33 years after the war was over. But this was the narrative that the Confederates stood by. It ignored entirely that the Confederate States of America were fighting betraying their nation, and sending young soldiers to die in order to keep slavery legal within their states. That is, plain and simple, their cause. But Fleming's lasting impact, possibly even more than his position and his impact on trains in Florida, is more than just this language, his memoir of his brother, his abolition of the Railroad Commission, his yellow fever response, none of that is more apparent than the thing we're going to talk about next. The most visible and lasting impact of Governor Francis Fleming is, in fact, our state flag. You know, as, as far as I'm concerned, I, or at least I find it very hard to believe that the flag had nothing to do with, or it's a coincidence that it looked like the Confederate battle flag, but it had St. Andrew's Cross. The St. Andrew's Cross, or the Cross of Burgundy, was a plain white flag with a red cross with some jagged lines on it. That was the flag of Spain through some iterations throughout many years of its existence. So it, it's essential to Florida's flag. It's what that red cross comes from. I refer to it as the Cross of Burgundy. Sometimes I'll call it a saltire. Uh, Seth refers to it right now as the St. Andrew's Cross, but it's all the same shape. It's the red cross over the white flag. In one of my favorite books, Finding Florida, author T.D. Allman states a resolute conclusion. Quote, Back then, the Florida flag, except for the seal, was entirely white. Some considered this feature an appropriate assertion of white supremacy. To Fleming, white signaled surrender to the Yankees. After leaving office, he devoted his energies to eliminating what he considered the Florida flag's defeatist aspects. End quote. The story goes that in a, quote, white-only referendum, end quote, meaning only white citizens could weigh in on it, the red saltire X was added to the flag in 1900 to honor the X of the Confederate flag. So the long, stretched-out red X that makes up the majority of Florida's current state flag, that's called a saltire. You're going to hear me saying that word, S-A-L-T-I-R-E. We've talked about the Florida state flag on an episode in the past. I'll include a link in the episode description so you can learn more about that, but... 
at the time, at the exact same time as this X was added to Florida's state flag, quote, Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia also made versions of the Confederate battle flag their state flags, end quote. It's true. The Alabama flag is very similar to ours. It just doesn't have the seal of Florida in the middle, which is probably the most iconic part of our state flag. The Mississippi flag literally had the Confederate battle flag in the right corner until 2020 when it became a magnolia surrounded by stars instead. And the Georgia flag had the Confederate flag in it from 1956 until 2001, when it was changed to a far more simple flag, red and white, with a sigil in the left corner. Florida and Alabama are the only state flags with the saltire still present, added at the same time, possibly to reflect their relationship with the Confederate battle flag, the famous stars and bars, red with the blue X across it with the stars, the the representative flag of the Confederate cause, the representative flag of the states that seceded from the United States in order to keep slavery legal. And it wasn't just the flags. All over, in so many ways, the Confederates were seeking to sow their legacy into public life. Almost around the same time that all of these or a lot of these southern states did it and it was you know late 1800s early 1900s um when these states florida also were starting to erect the first confederate monuments and confederate cemeteries and you know all of those things a lot of people don't realize that these flags monuments all of that stuff they didn't come in 1866 right started in 1890s through the 1920s or 1930s was kind of the the heyday of confederate monument construction and and remembrance why 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 was it 30 years later that 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 was happening one of the reasons well a couple of reasons kind of intersect one was this is just the, the mood in the south and the country at the time um, you know, Reconstruction has been over for a little over a decade, and you have the Jim Crow laws coming into effect. You have sort of a, a new but also old world order in the South. The South is kind of officially going back to the old South, and you have the idea of the new South kind of emerging in the 1880s and 1890s, especially in places like Atlanta. Uh, with Henry Grady and others, and many in the South that kind of wanted to remember or even go back as much as they could to the Old South felt that they needed these sort of things to to push the Old South, whether it was a flag, a, a, a monument. Another thing is it's when you really start to see the first you know kind of wave of Confederate veterans getting older and, and dying. Um, and, and a lot of this is done by their relatives, by the, their sons and daughters, um, you know, obviously where you get the name Sons of Confederate Veterans, United Daughters of Confederacy. A lot of them, you know, obviously were, and their fathers or, or whomever were getting older, dying, and they wanted to carry on the legacy. And some suspect that one way Fleming was hoping to ensure that legacy is with our flag. People suspect that the X that is in Florida's flag and the X that is in Alabama's flag is meant to sort of mirror the Confederate battle flag. And that is why Fleming wanted to put it in the state flag at that time. But some argue that we don't for certain know why Fleming 
wanted to add the saltire to the flag. Here's an article from April of 2020 titled, quote, A Material for Interpretation, an Inquiry into Confederate Symbolism and the Florida State Flag, end quote. It's written by one Nicholas Magnanelli and Sarah C. Slinger. I'll include a link so you can give it a read. It is a fascinating analysis of historical text as their goal was to actually prove whether or not the current state flag was inspired by Fleming and other former Confederates' desire to put the saltire of the Confederate flag into the state flag. Fleming was known to be passionate about the Confederacy, obviously, and also passionate about the Confederacy's flags. When a number of Confederate flags were brought to the state capitol in 1905, Fleming was obviously there, and he, quote, delivered an eloquent tribute to the flags, end quote. The authors of this piece go on to say, quote, Though it is likely that Governor Fleming suggested that the state of Florida add the red bars to its flags, his precise objective in doing so remains elusive, end quote. The common argument against whether or not the flag is a Confederate symbol is that the red saltire on our current flag resembles the Cross of Burgundy, which was the flag of Spain, a white field with a red saltire with sort of jagged edges on that flag. Go look up the Cross of Burgundy. It is strikingly similar. I mean, it's obviously similar. So it's just whether or not you believe that that was Fleming's reasoning. Why would it not be? Was it just the Spanish roots or was it the Confederacy? This piece argues that Fleming could easily have been honoring the Confederacy or he could have been honoring the state's Spanish roots. The results of this paper are inconclusive. Which leads me back to the first point. History and myth get blended, supplanted, debated. The second article cites the words of T.D. Allman and their intent was to prove whether or not his statement was true and their conclusion came up inconclusive. So does that make the story that Fleming made the state flag honor the Confederacy true or not? Here are Seth's thoughts on the matter, whether or not the flag is Confederate or not. He got the flag adopted with a referendum. It was obviously only white people could vote in the referendum. Um, He was very big in a lot of the other sort of beginnings of the lost cause uh, in trustee he was a trustee for um the confederate soldiers and sailors home in jacksonville and a lot of the other things that groups that would become the sons of the confederate veterans and the united daughters of the confederacy uh sort of did at that time to kind of build up the lost cause so yeah i mean we might not know ever if it was exactly um based on the the flag but I find it hard to believe that it wasn't at least influenced in in one way by it. Fleming was a huge author of the Lost Cause myth in Florida, and ensuring Florida's history was tied to the Confederacy forever was something he clearly sought to ensure for the 40 years after the Civil War ended. Why would this flag be any different? I don't know. He sought to change history or the way we talk about it, and for many, he succeeded. The Lost Cause is not a myth for many. It's the truth, despite its fictitious and frankly racist origins. So what happens when we don't teach history correctly? In the state of Florida, we're dealing with this exact conversation as the state legislature has passed new laws that restrict how Floridian and American history is taught to students. This all stems from a term that has become a bit of a hot-button issue in American politics concerning education. It's a term called critical race theory. You've likely heard the term bandied about. You may also have heard it referred to as CRT, and you may not know its meaning. 
Education Weekly defines the term, acknowledging that it has different meanings depending on your political position. They say that it is a term that, in some form or another, is, quote, more than 40 years old, end quote. They define it. Quote, the core idea is that race is a social construct and that racism is not merely the product of individual bias or prejudice, but also something embedded in legal systems and policies. End quote. Based on all teachings of American history, the presence of racism in the institutions and laws of America and American history is undeniable. The principal idea of critical race theory is to teach the truths of that racism in America, from slavery to segregation, from discrimination to our current debates about race in America. Education Weekly says, quote, critics charge that the theory leads to negative dynamics, such as a focus on group identity over universal shared traits, divides people into, quote unquote, oppressed and quote unquote, oppressor groups and urges intolerance, end quote. There are many critics of critical race theory, especially in Florida, and the governor of Florida, the current one, Ron DeSantis, is one of them. There is an article from CNN by Steve Contorno. It reads, referring to Ron DeSantis, quote, His administration has forced K-12 schools to comb their textbooks and curriculum for any evidence of critical race theory or related topics, and he championed a new law that puts guardrails on lessons about racism and oppression, end quote. This has led to schools across the state being unclear on how to go about teaching the truth of American history. DeSantis argues that black history has long been taught in Florida, which is true. Quote, Florida has required its schools to teach African-American history since 1994. End quote. But a board called the African-American History Task Force looked into that sort of thing to see how consistent and complete the education of black history in Florida schools actually was. They have found, however, that, quote, only 11 of the state's 67 county school districts meet all of the benchmarks for teaching black history set by the African-American task force. End quote. 11 out of 67. 11. The most troubling matter is the inconsistency and the gray areas between the two requirements. School districts have to decide what falls between these two barriers. Black history must be taught, but how much of it? How much of it falls into the definition of critical race theory? If, it, if that is what's banned, but it must be taught, where are teachers supposed to go? It's American history. It's a part of our story as a country, as a state, as a people, the good and the bad. If history teachers don't know what can be taught on the subject, what are they supposed to do? What would you do if you were a teacher? The impact of ignoring history or teaching a minimized version of history is profound. We have plenty of evidence of that, and the lost cause is the prime example. In many ways, it's the same or a very similar discussion and similar debate that we've been having at least on topics of race and, and remembrance and, and, and that since the Civil War. Um, you know, up until about 30 or 40 years ago in the South and even in Florida, a more Southern history of, or a, a, a old South lost cause narrative was taught that began to change in the 90s, uh, late 80s, 90s. But it almost seems as we're we're now questioning whether we can teach actual facts um, for fear that it might upset somebody. And, you know, th this is a major problem. I, I saw recently a video that was shown to Collier County, Florida, uh, elementary school students about the Civil War in Florida. 
And it was something that could have come straight out of, you know, 1912. And not only was it, you know, steeped in this lost cause, it was, a lot of it was historically inaccurate. Mm. And I've found that with a lot of these kind of rewritings of, of historical narratives that have been happening in Florida and other places in the last couple of years. I hate to use the term that they're not being done by serious historians, but in some cases they're not. And not only is it portraying it in a, a way that I think is, is harmful, a lot of the, the information is not historically accurate. The Lost Cause, at its core, was about minimizing or even flat out erasing the true cause of the Confederates in seceding from the United States. By erasing the fundamental truth of the Confederacy, its dependency on slavery, you erase the truth of the history. And that has ramifications and repercussions. This is a quote from Britannica. Quote, as racial segregation took hold in law across the South by the 1890s, a new generation of white Southerners took up the lost cause as a racial ideology. But they did so by listening to the older representatives of the war generation. White supremacy and the stories of the lost cause reverberated in the very heartbeat of Jim Crow America. End quote. By creating the lost cause myth, and allowing it to persist in the public consciousness of the American people despite its fundamental untruth, the country gave fuel to the destructive flame of white supremacy, and the reverberations of that are present to this very day in so many ways, including in our debate over critical race theory in Florida. The question I ask you then is this, how do we prevent a lack of historical education from affecting us in the long term for years to come? How do we make sure the generation that comes next understands the truth of our history? How do we prevent another version of the lost cause? Or how do we stop the lost cause from continuing to affect the way that we understand American history? I can only speak for myself. I make this show every week and I read history that stretches across hundreds of years. Sometimes I read stories that don't make it into the episode, but they help me understand so much of this country's history so I can share it with you. It gives me more context. And you know it as well as I do. History is not kind. It breaks your heart, the endless tragedies, as you look backward in our records. But there is plenty, I mean plenty, of good within our history too. Heroes, communities, growth, connection, love. But one cannot exist without the other, and I feel better every day that I know both, that I get to share with you both, knowing history, the truth of it, the good and the bad, should inspire us. It should inspire us, knowing the bad history, to create the good history. The history that our children's children will read about in their history books for years to come. The sort of history that will make them proud. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. Thank you for listening to this episode. It really means a lot to me to get to talk about this because it matters a lot. Not that other stories don't matter, but this one has been weighing on me for some time and it felt very important to me that we talk about it. So thank you for giving me the time in your day for us to share these stories 
for you to hear what 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 is so important about this. And if you enjoyed this episode, uh, I hope that you can pass along some of the things that you've learned with the people in your life, because I certainly have been sharing with the people in my life the things that I have learned as I have worked on this episode. So thank you for listening. It truly, sincerely means a lot to me. You can find me on Instagram at WFMPod or on Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. If you have some thoughts about this episode, if you have thoughts about the lost cause or the current situation of the way that history is being taught in the state, I'd love to hear from you. Truly. WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you to Seth Whites for being a guest on this episode. It was a last minute request for him to be on this show because I was reading a wonderful paper of his that was exactly on this topic. And I thought, why quote Seth Whites when I can have his voice in the episode? So thank you to him for making a quick phone call with me so I could include his his thoughts in this episode. I've included a link in the episode description so you can check out some more of Seth's work. He is always insightful and I'm very grateful he took the time to chat with me for this episode. All of the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, folks, that is it for me this week. I know we've had two Tuesday episodes back to back. Last week, we took a break to honor June 12th, which is the anniversary of the Pulse shooting. And this week, we took a break on Monday to honor Juneteenth. If you did not see the posts on the Instagram stories about Juneteenth, go check those out. I'll include some links in this episode description so you can learn more about that very important day in American history. Next week, we are back to a Monday release schedule, and we will be on every Monday, including July 3rd. I'm very excited for the July 3rd episode, but we will be back next Monday for our last episode in June. I'm very much looking forward for that episode. Uh, We go to the History Center and learn some pretty incredible history about Orlando, my hometown, and I cannot wait to share it with you. So until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and perhaps it's more important to say this than ever, go Gator and muddy the water. Have a great week. I will see you on Monday. Take care of yourself.